Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lauther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of Nuclecast. Of course, I'm Adam Lowther, as always, and today we have a great guest. Darwin Morgan was the public information officer for NNSA out at the Nevada, I mispronounced it and said Nevada, but it's the Nevada National Security Site for three decades, and he is now a historian that gives tours out at the site. And he works at the Atomic Testing Museum as well, which if you've never been uh, and you're in Vegas, it's a great place to go. It's, you know, it's in Vegas. So make sure you stop by in between uh, the, the poker and the, and the poker tables and see some some testing history. So with that, welcome into NucleCast. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate being here. So the Nevada National Security Site, I always want to call it the Nevada Test Site. Uh, so I have to always think uh, think about that and make sure I call it the Nevada National Security Site. But it's uh, we've conducted hundreds of above and below ground nuclear detonations out, out there. And it's a place that very few people have spent much time. It's not open to the public. You can't really tour it. And so having you on NucleCast to help our listeners and the broader public understand the history and the mission of the test site is, is you know, it's really informative and helpful. So with that, let me ask you to, to kick us off by giving us a bit of history of how the site came to be, why is it located where it is, you know, how did it get its start and, and sort of what went on there throughout the years of the Cold War? So the United States was out testing in the Pacific and the logistics to get out to the Pacific was just unbearable. The safety requirements to get out there, the number of people that they were trying to get out there. Um, and then they were starting to have security issues with all the fishing trawlers that were coming around from the other nations. So the military went to the president and asked, can we go and see if we can find a place in the continental United States to do the lower yield nuclear tests? And the president uh, said yes. And so they started a top secret program called Project Nutmeg. And they began the search here in the United States for a site. They looked at Galveston, Texas and where Camp Lejeune is in North Carolina. The idea was there is that those radioactive clouds would go out into the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean. They went and looked at Dugway Proving Grounds in Utah. They looked back where Trinity had been done in New Mexico and then came out to the Nevada, uh, with what was in the Nellis Bombing and Gunnery Range, looked there, settled on that location. There was a very small enclosed valley that they could use and chose that location. The president signed the paperwork on December 18, 1950. 45 calendar days later, they dropped the first bomb on the United States out on Frenchman Flat. Yeah. Wow. And so we went from 
660 square miles in the original size to where we are today at about 1,355 square miles. Imagine the size of the state of Rhode Island. We're about the size of the state of Rhode Island sitting completely within one county here in Nevada. Yeah, that's, uh, that's something I've, I've spent some time out there and, uh, you know, it's, if you, if you stay in Vegas and then you have to drive out to the side and then once you hit the front gate and then you go up to, to some of the sites, I mean, it's quite a ways. It's, it's a drive. Uh, more people is, don't now, realize, no more go. people don't realize I had a crew out, uh, not a crew yesterday, but uh, the atomic testing museum is redesigning itself, reimagining itself. And so I took a design team out there and they were stunned by the length of the distance between facilities out there, the openness of the site out there. It just, people don't realize just how open it is, how far away it is, um, and that they were able to do that. And what was perceived as being close to Las Vegas, but most of where the testing took place was 75, 80 miles from Las Vegas. Yeah. And so, you know, we have this site. So what went on at the site? You know, we, we now know it, you know, it started testing in 1950. And so tell us about that history from that first detonation until the present. So January 27th, 1951, they did ABLE, the very first test, um, one of the many ABLEs that they did at the site. Uh, <clears throat> there over Frenchman Flat, did a total of 100 atmospheric uh, tests between Frenchman Flat and Yucca Flats, looking at a wide variety of things. It was the development of the new designs of the nuclear weapons <clears throat> that were that were being uh, put out by the National Weapons Laboratories. They started looking at the effects. If you go out on Frenchman Flat, there are still structures left there from the Priscilla test of what the heat and blast effects were on different types of structures. What we know about nuclear hardening of facilities when they built NORAD and, and Cheyenne Mountain, those were built on the principles that they learned from how to harden there at the site. Atmospheric testing lasted us through 1964. Then with treaty, moved to underground testing, uh, 828 underground tests uh, out at the site, 800, yeah, 828 underground tests at the site. And again, so, learning more about the design of the nuclear weapons, learning about how the weapon would work in an extreme heat environment, how it would work in an extreme cold environment. If they had safety issues that they believed that existed, they would test to check those safety systems. Uh, back in the tunnels, they would do tests that would be associated with uh, the hardening of military equipment, understanding the effects of EMP and things like that on, on military equipment. So. It, it was a science-based program for both new designs of nuclear weapons, safety systems within the weapons, and then furthering along any issues that they might have as they believe they came up with the computer modeling. So we, we did above ground and did 100 plus above ground. And, you know, standing on Frenchman Flat, is, it's kind of interesting, you know, to stand there and know that this spot where you're standing, there were more than 100 above-ground nuclear tests, and yet you can stand there. It's perfectly safe. And it's just one of those things that I don't think many people realize or think about. Uh, they sort of think of, you know, any kind of nuclear detonation, and there's this 
never-ending wasteland that, you know, humans can't set foot on for thousands of years. But that's not really true. Right. When you're standing there on Frenchman Flat next to the bridge, and you see the remnant of that bridge that got ripped away from that nuclear blast from Priscilla, and you see a three-foot I-beam that was hit by heat, softened to the point that the blast could bend it like a pretzel. Uh, you really start to understand the power. And then going back to your point, when you look at it in the grand scheme of everything that was done out at the site, we impacted less than 10% of the site from roads, buildings, atmospheric underground testing. The rest of the site is is truly pristine, so much so that here within Nevada, Desert Research Institute, which is a part of the University of Nevada System of Higher Education, does vast amounts of research out there, biological research, environmental research on the site because they've got areas of land that have never been touched other than by Native Americans out there. There's never been any cattle grazing. So extremely rare plants can be studied for decades to see how they respond to different types of of global warming, things like that. So it's, it's a great place for environmental type studies as well. But its main mission was nuclear weapons testing. And then as we moved into today with the stockpile stewardship program that's going on there now. And so let's talk about, so we had above ground and then did we move, you know, to vertical below ground testing or did we move horizontal into the mountains first or was it some of both? And then why would you do below ground versus, you know, these horizontal adits that you're testing in the mountains? What's the, the difference in the purpose there? So um, they were doing, they started, they actually did the first underground test in 1951, the first year that they did testing out here at the site. Uh, and they finally fully contained an underground test in the late 50s. But when the treaty came into effect that there would be no more open air in the water nuclear test, that's when all of the nations moved to underground. So for the site, we had already been doing tests in the tunnels. Those tests in the tunnels, in the adits, as you're saying, were basically for the military so that they could understand the effects on that first prompt burst of radiation on various types of military hardware, military equipment. The vertical shafts down into the, into the ground were for safety tests, were for design tests, um, anything associated with the development of the current weapon stockpile that they had at the time. Uh, so that was the differentiation between the tunnel tests and what we were doing with the um, ver- uh, vertical test that would go into the ground. And so the vertical test would be in these holes that would be anywhere from 10 to 12 feet in diameter. We had the technology to drill holes straight and plumb, no more than two to four inches diameter uh, uh, deviation from top to bottom, which is hard for people to imagine that you can drill a hole thousands of feet deep that is perfectly straight. Because when you're working with a nuclear canister that's holding the nuclear device and you've got to lower it down thousands of feet, you can't have that 200 foot canister binding as it's going down. And so right. they would bring those down into the ground, stem them back up, do the test for whatever purpose associated with that specific weapon system. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about the the idea that, you know, you have to have this perfectly straight uh, 
borehole that you, you're going down then just because of the nature of the canister set. Okay. So, so I've learned something myself. One of the things we do, we actually do have tours out of the state site, public tours that people can sign up for. Uh, we're doing about three public tours a month on, on buses where they get to drive up uh, Mercury Highway, which is the main corridor there. And we take them to Ice Cap, which was to be the last underground nuclear test on the site. And they walk into a building where there is a 110 foot, 10 foot diameter canister in there that was supposed to be the last underground nuclear test. And it helps them to visualize just the sheer size of what it took to do an underground nuclear test and to be able to see this gigantic canister sitting in this tower, ready to be lowered into the ground anytime. Uh, it helps people start understanding what you had to do from an engineering perspective. Yeah. So what, what about the containment of radiation? Can you maybe talk about the safety and, you know, just how it worked and what was done? Give us, give our listeners maybe a sense of that. Early on, they were not very successful in containing the radioactive gases, and so they would have ventings to the surface. Um, through a lot of study, working with the various engineers, they came up with these detailed stimming diagrams, stimming plans that they would use. And so when the device is down underground, um, they would take uh, this engineered plan, which would include grout, three-part epoxy plugs, uh, various coarse type of materials, I mean, I'm talking gravel, very fine sands, magnetite, that they would layer in around that canister and take it all the way up to the surface. And that was to prevent those radioactive gases from coming up to the top, to from venting. In addition to that, the hundreds of cables at varying lengths along the cable they would cut those cables and put gas blocks, uh, mechanical gas blocks in uh, that were would keep the gases from coming up the cables, which was the most, uh, probably the easiest route for the radioactive gases to get out and up to the surface. So it was a highly engineered plan. They had to make sure that all of the people that were associated with it, the panel that did the engineering was scientists from the laboratory, the USGS within the DOE federal community, uh, that got on this panel and it had to get all A's and if it got one B, it could pass, but it was a very rigorous grading system on how they did the stimming of these devices to assure that none of the radioactive gases would get up to the surface. Um, twice, um, they had prompt massive venting to shut down the testing program, but they learned from that, uh, improved from that. Uh, one of them was better understanding of the geology. So, a lot of core samples would be taken before they would pick an area to make sure that they fully understood the geology. And, and like with Bainberry, where they had a, a unknown fault line, they would then be able to discover things like that. And it was that fault line with Bainberry that carried those hot gas steam to the surface and the prompt massive venting that they got from it. Mm -hmm. So as you think about the site, and what is most interesting about it that, you know, the American public would find interesting? What would you offer for, you know, our listeners and, and the broader public on just why is this site an interesting place? The science, just even the basic science that was done out there, the things that they were able to do with 
analog technology and within a millionth of a second be able to capture massive amounts of data before an item was completely vaporized in an underground environment thousands of feet deep. Uh, the science behind that, the timing to do it, uh, the sheer magnitude. When, when we take people out to Sedan Crater, you've, you've got this crater that's 365 feet deep, over 1,200 feet in circumference, and they see what the power of a 104 kiloton thermonuclear device is to be able to dig. It just is they're awestruck. And you've talked about Frenchman Flat. When people get off the bus and stand there at the bridge at Frenchman Flat and see the sandblasting effect on the concrete, when they see that bridge and those I-beams, those massive I-beams that have just been bent like they were a straw, it's, you, you feel the power of what's going on out there. And then the third thing is just the sheer wide openness of the site, the beauty of the site. Um, the amount of wild animals that we have out there. Um, most tours out there, people are seeing antelope that are running around out there, coyotes. We've had a big rainy season, so the jackrabbits are running like crazy out there, are going to be running out crazy out there. So you've got all of these different elements that bring it together, uh, that bring awe to people when they come out there and see the site. Now, is as we think about the future of testing, can you talk a, a little bit about the preparedness? Because, you know, while we're not engaged in testing right now, there's still a requirement that we have to be able to be ready to test. Can you talk about that? Maybe give us some details. And then is that, because there's some question, I mean, there's some folks that wonder, could we actually do it if necessary in, in the timelines we have? Can you maybe talk about that? So there is a presidential decision directive that mandates a period of time that the National Nuclear Security Administration, the Nevada National Security Site, has to be ready to perform an underground nuclear test. If with the current program, the current stockpile stewardship program, if the lab directors from Lawrence Livermore and Los Alamos cannot certify to the Secretary of Energy and the Secretary of Defense that a nuclear weapon is safe, reliable, and that there needs to be an underground test, then we would have to, within um, I, it's a, a three to six month period, be able to do an underground test. With that, we have the equipment still from 1992, the drilling rigs, the drilling equipment, the things that we would need to be able to do those type of tests. From a diagnostic perspective, uh, obviously we're no longer in an analog state, so the experiments that are being done around the NNSA right now uh, through the subcritical experiments at the UNA facility on the site with the Jasper two-stage gas gun, with what they're doing at Los Alamos with Lance and Dart, at Sandia with the Z machine, at Livermore with the National Ignition Facility, the diagnostics that they're using to, to get the data that they're using as a part of the stockpile stewardship program, those diagnostics would be brought to bear to capture the data that would be needed to support an underground nuclear test. So we, we're, we're continually in a test readiness mode through our current experimental program, having the equipment if we had to do it, having the diagnostics if we had to do it. Uh, we've got a surplus of holes, varying depths at the site. Uh, so probably wouldn't have to drill a hole. 
We still have the capability to manufacture the canisters or the rack, depending which lab you're with and what they call it. So the capabilities exist to be able to do it. Um, time frame is one of the things that's argued within the scientific community. If they could do it within that time frame, that's mandated within the PDD. But the big but is the lawsuits that would come. There would have to be probably a presidential decision that it's in the national interest to do it, to keep the agency out of the lawsuits that would come. The National Environmental Protection Act, people would be citing that the needs to do uh, environmental impact statements, those type of things. What would you do to get through those uh, in the courts? Would they be necessary? If it's a national emergency, if it's a national mandate, so at a very, at a level much higher than I'm at, you're at, we're at, would have to be some decisions made. Uh, what is in the best interest of the nation to do that test? And do you still need to do all of the environmental regulations? So it's, it's a tricky question. Yeah, yeah. It is a uh, a challenging one for sure because there would certainly be advocates, you know, of nuclear disarmament who would uh, wouldn't be willing to go along with testing. So sure, but but in our case, we have been setting ourselves up to be able to have the diagnostics, to be able to have the equipment, to have in place, to be able to do those tests and to field it and execute it safe in a safe manner. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the AMLA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Could you maybe talk about some of the, the, the testing? And you kind of briefly mentioned this, but the testing that's going on out at the site right now. And, and what does the site do today? Because, uh, you know, it's a it's a government-owned, corporate-operated, it's a go-co that, you know, it's, uh, you know, Gary Heronsack runs it these days. And it's out there actively doing things. It's not you know, doing nuclear testing, but what specifically is it doing today? So the NNSS is the only location in the United States where we can do experiments on plutonium. Uh, At the other sites where they're doing the stockpile stewardship program, they're doing it, doing experiments with surrogate materials, uh, microscopic amounts at Z machine, as I understand it, uh, what they do. But for here at the site, it, it's larger quantities of plutonium that we subject to the shockwave. We set off a high explosive as that shockwave goes through the plutonium. The scientists are able to get detailed information related to what's happening to that plutonium as it ages, uh, the different types of plutonium, whether it's wrought plutonium, whether it's cast plutonium, uh, taking uh, samples out of existing pits that are in existing weapon systems so that they can validate that the stockpile is still safe and reliable without underground nuclear explosive testing. Uh, So the subcritical experiments, 
962 feet underground at the facility that's called U1A out there and a one meter vessel, steel vessel, that they take a piece of plutonium and subject it to the shock waves. Another facility called the Joint Actinide Shock Physics Experimental Research, you've got to love the government and their acronyms, the JASPER facility. They're firing a projectile up to 1,800 miles per hour into a piece of plutonium that's about the size and shape of a half dollar. And from that, they're getting data that helps them. That's different pressure regimes from JASPER to the subcritical. Uh, different pressure regimes on the surrogate materials that they have at Lance and Dart, Z and NIF, with NIF being obviously the one that gets you closest to the temperatures and pressures that you would see in a nuclear explosion. So all of that's folding into the computers, getting data to the scientists. They compare that data to known data from underground nuclear tests. And then they're able, as I said earlier, for the, secretary, uh, for the uh, lab directors to give the thumbs up to the Secretary of Energy and the Secretary of Defense, the weapons are still safe, secure, reliable without underground nuclear explosive testing. Yeah, that's, I, I'm not sure if I recall all of the work that was being done with plutonium. And so it's out at the site where they're, you know, sort of doing the testing to me measure the effects of spalling and some of these other challenges yes. that... So that's interesting. They've got a new they've got a new uh, facility coming online at UNA, which is a football field side linear accelerator. That's going to allow them to see deeper into the plutonium. Uh, another one where they're going to do neutron diagnosis experiments, where they will introduce neutrons in. Uh, so they're getting themselves more and more better data that gives them that information that they can do without having, it's a broken record, but it's yeah. without having to do the underground nuclear explosive testing. That's the, that's the aim and purpose is to continue to keep the United States in that position to not have to do an underground nuclear test and do it through this experimental program that takes place around the NNSA complex. Hmm. So, you know, we're at that time in the show where, you know, we're running out of time and, and it, this is, the point, um, and I don't know if I had ever told you this before, but whenever I was, you know, out at the site the last time, I, I, you know, sort of broke away from the tour for a minute, and I, I found a genie in in a in a lamp that I, yeah. I, I don't know if it, yeah, I don't know if it was if it was supposed to be there or, or not, but whenever I rubbed the lamp, I got three wishes. Now. I, you know, I want to, I want to let my genie Bob, you know, he gives wishes to other people too, as long as I say it's okay. And so as you think about what you wish for the site in the years to come and, and Bob grants you those three wishes, what, what would those three wishes be for, for the site? Wow. Um, I guess the main thing is to continue to maintain our ability to support our nation and understanding what's going on uh, with, with the nuclear weapons to continue to meet the goals and objectives of, of the NNSA as it comes to that reliability and safety without having to do underground nuclear explosive testing. Um, for me, probably the singular and most important thing is maintaining the history and understanding the history, knowing what we've done out, out there, what, what, what's happened out there, uh, I'm a big believer in you repeat your history if you don't learn from your history. 
and to see what we've done out there, know what we've done. Uh, it, it's, it's an amazing thing, the history of the site and how it's contributed uh, throughout the world with, with some of the technologies that have spun off from what we've done. What we know about high-speed photography came about as a result of what Edgerton, Germerhausen, and Greer did out at the site, taking the pictures of those, those tests in the Pacific and out at the site. Uh, just, just one of the multitude of things that has come from it. Part of the Human Genome Pro Project got some of its start from some of the test data results that we were getting from what we were doing with nuclear testing. So there's a wide range of things that have happened there that have contributed, continue to contribute, but keeping that history and knowing that history and understanding the history, that's what's important for me. That's only yeah, two we... wishes, but I'd be, I'd be happy there. My third wish, I'm sorry, I do know what my third wish is. And it's from the movie Genie. That'd be to set the genie free. <laughs> now, uh, we we did talk to Wendy Baca on a previous episode. And, you know, Wendy's, she's doing a bunch for this sort of knowledge capture and transfer. Is the, are you guys out at the site doing much in terms of sort of the, that similar work where you're really trying to capture all of that scientific and practical knowledge such that it can, you know, future scientists, the, the young guys and gals coming out to work at the site have the ability to take advantage of that? Is, is that going on as well? There had been an effort by UNLV a number of years ago. They did a lot of oral histories of workers and that captured the workforce in the late 90s, 2000s. Uh, the laboratories uh, continued to do a lot of oral histories and capturing of the history and having that on file uh, through the Atomic Museum. Uh, we do a lot of things there to remember the history uh, through the museum itself, showing both atmospheric underground testing, some of the current programs at the site, uh, uh, getting the docents are the people who worked out there at the site that have that history and being able to carry it on to people. Uh, so there have been those efforts. Is it as good as it should be? Probably not. There has been those efforts, but I know the national laboratories have a pretty good program in place where that they're capturing those histories currently as they go. Yeah. And it's interesting because as, as we're sitting here talking about this, the movie Oppenheimer's coming out. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it's, uh, it's going to be quite, you know, it'll be interesting to see if the American public responds to that and how well the movie does. And is there anything that you you think is sort of important for listeners or, you know, the public to sort of pay attention to as they potentially watch this movie? I mean, I, correct. I don't know. I, I'm not sure if I know. Was any of the movie filmed at the site? It was not. No. Okay. None of the, none of the movie was done there. I, yeah, to me, it's just recognizing it's easy in 2023 to set an armchair quarterback what was done 60, 70 years ago. Um, I think you have to look at what was going on in the world at the time. You have to understand the geopolitical situation, the politics, the local politics that were going on, what was happening that led to the decisions that were made, why they were doing what they were doing at that time in history. Uh, like I said, it's, ex it's extremely easy. The armchair quarterback here in 2023, the decisions they made, uh, why they did what they did. Would we do it that way now? Um, it, it, 
have I ever told you? Have I ever told you that I I'm I, I mean I don't like to brag about this, but I am a certified superhero, and my superpower <laughs> is hindsight. Yeah, and so I, I actually have really, really good hindsight. So uh, I think some other people, although they're probably not certified superheroes like I am, <laughs> but I think they also have hindsight superpowers as well. So that seems to be a common theme. Except, uh, except the movie for what it is and what, yeah. what's happening based in time. I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I'm looking. Forward yeah, to it should it. be. It, you know, all that the good, the good, uh, the good music, the good acting. Uh, it should, you know, brings brings light to uh, a time that you know nowadays people have largely forgotten about. So, I was talking to to, to your coworker there, and uh, one of the things I was saying is that there's a thread out there where people believe that an actual nuclear weapon was set off. They did a real nuclear test for that scene. And I'm just oh, like, wow, what? Wow. <laughs> How would the world not know about that? And yeah. So, yeah. It's an, well, it's an odd Hollywood thing. is powerful. So yes, it is. <laughs> well, thanks uh, Darwin. Thanks for joining us. Uh, that was a, it was an interesting episode. Hopefully the listeners now have a better sense of what goes on out at the Nevada national security site. Maybe they'll they'll be spurred if they're out in Vegas for fun. Maybe they'll try to get themselves on one of the three tours a month that, that you offer yep. and go to the museum, take a bit Please. of interest. And in, yeah, so it uh, hopefully we'll we'll have some folks that will, exp- you know, show some more interest and visit the side of the museum. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being able to talk about the site. And thanks to you, the listeners, as always, for joining us on this episode of the NucleCast, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode. Well, what a interesting, interesting talk. Darwin was, um, you know, was pretty informative and just to really think through, you know, when, how the whole thing got started. I'm not sure. I mean, I, I sort of figured, but Darwin put it into good context as to why we shifted from testing in the Pacific to testing at, uh, you know, out at the Nellis range. And then of course, you know, his layout of exactly, you know, what we've done over time, you know, why we, I don't think I ever knew why the, why we would go vertically or vertically versus horizontally uh, until he explained, you know, that you go horizontal because you want to test military equipment and you, you, you know, you need the bigger hole. And so that that difference in testing, that was kind of an interesting point. And I don't think I had ever heard just how straight the holes we dig are. I guess I probably assumed it, but didn't really think about it. And so it was, uh, you know, it was a good, it was a good discussion. I think there, there are several points I picked up that I don't think I had really known the answer to before. So uh, enjoyed the talk. Hopefully you did as well. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Frumthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.